Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're going to be in chapters 20 and 21 this morning. Chapter 20 is where we're going to start this morning. And, and last week, if, if you were with us, or if you weren't with us, last week we left things in Israel divided. So, so we saw this crack begin to take place in Israel. Absalom's rebellion, which we saw last week, was put to an end. Absalom was killed. But after he was killed, this, this division arose between the men of Judah, who, who were David's people, David's tribe, and the rest of the tribes of Israel, the, all of Israel and Judah. There was this division. And, and we left off last week, there's there a comment about the words of the men of Judah were harsh and fierce. And so it seems as we pick up this week that those harsh words just, just propelled this division. And so we're going to see division continue to work against King David in our text this morning. And so in this text this morning, these two chapters, we're going to see another rebellion. We're going to see a worthless man who's going to rebel. We're going to see Israel experience a famine because of of what happened under King Saul's leadership. And then we're going to see Israel at war with the giants. I mean, so we're going to see all that. So so the outline that that I have, that's, that's right along the lines. That's just what we're going to do. We're going to look all of chapter 20 is going to be rebellion in Israel. So we're going to see the rebellion of, of a man named Sheba. And then the, the first 14 verses of chapter 21, we're going to see famine in Israel. And then finally, the, the last few verses of chapter 21, we're going to see Israel at war with the giants, with, with the giants of Gath. And so that's, that's how we'll go this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read all of chapter 20 at the outset. So follow along. I'm going to begin in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel 20, beginning in verse 1. Now there happened to be a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And Sheba blew the trumpet, and he said, We have no portion in David, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and he put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and you be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do, more, do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab, wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. As he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, the brother, 
his brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his, hand, took his stand by Amasa, and he said, Whoever favors Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field, and he threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maccah. And all the Birchrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came, and they besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering, battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So Joab blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abathar were priests, and Ira the Jerethite was also David's priest. Well, let's, let's pray as we, as we look through chapter 20. Father, we pray that you would speak to us as we just sang in that song. Speak, Lord, we, we've come to you. We've come to receive your holy word, and so we, we pray that, that your truth, that you would plant it deep, deep in us, and, and that it would shape and fashion us, that we might be like you, that we might be holy like Christ. And so I pray that it was, as we sit under your word, as we hear from your word, that it would shape us, it would transform us, and that it would do so for your own glory. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, chapter 20, rebellion in Israel. So picking up the story from last week, after Absalom had been killed and his rebellion had ended, the bitter feelings aroused in the confrontation between the men of Judah and their northern neighbors, all of Israel, and, and this, this confrontation served as kindling for a second fire of rebellion against David. So as we saw at the end of chapter 19, there's still tension, and, this te- and into that tension steps a worthless man named Sheba. And so that's what there happened to be a worthless man. We don't want to miss how this man is described in verse 1. And so this worthless man blows a trumpet, and he orders all the men of Israel, retreat, retreat. So technically, Sheba isn't leading a rebellion. He's just saying, we're not following David anymore. Retreat, come away from David. We're not going to support him. And so in verse 2, all the men of Israel 
withdraw from David, and they follow him. So he is actually leading a rebellion because they say, okay, we're not following David, we'll follow you. And so Sheba has a following. They, they follow him. They, they leave from David. And notice, unlike rebellion led by Absalom, which as we talked about, it included men from both Judah and Israel, this division is right down the line. So it says all of Israel follow Sheba, and verse 2 says that all the men of Judah follow David. Okay, so this is right down the line. So Judah follows David, and, and those not from Judah follow Sheba. And, and the, the people of Judah, they follow David back across the Jordan, back into Jerusalem. And so as the second rebellion forms, remember when the first one started, when Absalom came, David fled from Jerusalem. Well, now as rebellion forms, David is fleeing into Jerusalem. Him and his servants are going into the fortified city, which is good news for them. They're going to be safe there. He's going to be king there. And when he gets back into his house, into the palace there in Jerusalem, he addresses the ten concubines that he had left. You remember the ten women that when he had fled for, from Absalom, he left ten women to care for the place. And because of what had transpired, remember when he was gone, what had happened, his son Absalom had gone into them in an act of rebellion, this public display of disgrace and rebellion. Because of that, when David returns, he doesn't go into them, but instead he puts them in a house under guard and provided for them. Now, it's hard to tell what leads David to do this. It could be that he does this out of care for them. This could be him accepting the wrong that he had done and providing for them. Or it could be just him not caring about them and saying, get them out of here. We don't know his motivation. Either way, it doesn't change their experience or their situation. We'll come back to them. Actually, no, we'll address them right now, right? Because when he, he puts them in a house and he leaves them, and they live their lives as widows until the day of their death. And so, so I pause right here and make one point of application, which is simply the, the reality of human sadness. I mean, it's easy to pass over there. So, so David comes back into Jerusalem and, and the text could have, could have just gone over these ladies and, and not mentioned them. But it, the first thing that it records when he comes back into Jerusalem is that these ladies were, this is what happened, that here's how David handled them. And so it, it is a sad situation, much like Tamar from earlier, if you remember. These women's lives are ruined. It's ruined, and it's no fault of their own. Don't miss that. This is not their fault. They had nothing to do with what they're experiencing. Because of David's sin with Bathsheba, which led to public humiliation of David, and then because of Absalom's evil plan to use them, they were sentenced to lives of confinement, isolation, and loneliness. Listen to how one author describes their situation. The only way of disposing of them was to put them in ward, to shut them up in confinement, to wear out the rest of their lives in a dreary, joyless widowhood. All joy and brightness was thus taken out of their lives, and personal freedom was denied them. They were doomed for no fault of theirs to the weary lot of captives. Now listen to what he says. Cursing the day probably when their beauty had brought them to the palace and wishing that they could exchange lots with the humblest of their sisters that breathed the air of freedom. Isn't that, that description, that's just powerful. So, so the images, they're, they're put away just, just hating the day when they were told, David wants you. You can be one of his ten women. They, they surely were beautiful women that, that he brought. And now they are consigned to this dreary, joyless widowhood, probably cursing their day, living out 
their days. And, and so we ought to sympathize with these unnamed women. We ought to recognize through their lives simply that sin has consequences. This is still their sadness, their suffering is a result of human sin. But here, the consequences of sin affect those who had nothing to do with it. Sin and its consequences affect those who sometimes had nothing to do with it. Sometimes sin ruins the lives of those not responsible for the sin itself. I mean, this goes for family members, children, friends. I mean, think about, think about it. Think about divorce. Think about adultery. Think about drug addiction. These are sins that affect those who had nothing to do with the sin itself. And so maybe your life has been ruined because of the sins of another. Maybe you're suffering because of your parents' sin or grandparents'. Or maybe you feel like you've ruined the lives of others because of your sin. Maybe you feel like your sin, your kids or grandkids have been affected by your sin. Well, in either case, while the suffering can't be eliminated, right, just hear me, you can't fix that, right, consequences will be played out. You can't free yourself from the consequences of others, and you can't undo things that you've done, but, and this may seem simple, but, but this is an enormous truth, the Lord is with you in your suffering, the Lord is with them. The Lord is, is available to them to walk through their season of sadness or their life of sadness. The Lord is with those who you've hurt in their suffering. And so if you feel the weight of guilt from your consequences, if you feel the weight of your responsibility for others suffering sin's consequences, you can't fix it and you can't undo what's been done, but you can entrust yourself and entrust those that you've hurt to the Lord. And so you can't change it. You can feel as sorry as you want, but you can't change it. But you can entrust and point those to the Lord, and you can point yourself to the Lord. The presence and comfort of the Lord should not be minimized when it comes to human sadness. There's a real sustaining presence and power available to those because the Lord is no stranger to suffering and sadness, is He? We ought to pray for those who find themselves in the place of these women or in the place of David, and we ought to care for them also, because human sadness is a reality in this world. Well, once, once David's, moving on with our, our text, once David's established again in Jerusalem, and after he's taken care of these ten women, David has to address what's going on with Sheba. So he hears what's going on, so he calls Amasa, the newly appointed military leader, and he tells Amasa, go gather all the men of Judah. His plan is to act quickly. Remember, that that's, that's what you got to do. That's, what, that's how he was spared. He, he would have been defeated if, if his opponent, Absalom, would have acted quickly, but the Lord frustrated Absalom's plans. And so he says, i got to act quickly so that, so that Sheba can't gather, gather a following. He can't, he can't amass his troops. And so he sends this, this man Amasa away. And he says, come back in three days and you be here also. Maybe he was questioning Amasa's allegiance. Remember, Amasa had led Absalom's army. So he sends Amasa away. And verse 5 tells us that Amasa delayed beyond the three days. And so three days is up, and he's not back, and neither are the men of Judah. And so we don't know why Amasa was delayed. Maybe he was just an inept general, and he couldn't get people. Or maybe he didn't want to come back. We don't know why. All we know is he, can't, he doesn't make it back in time. And when he doesn't show up, David says, okay, we've got to act with or without Amasa. We've got to move. The longer we wait, the, the more likely it is that Sheba is going to, going to be harmed for us. So David sends Abishai. 
So remember, he doesn't have the men of Judah, so he sends Abishai, he says, go pursue Sheba, go get him. We've got to stop him before he gains momentum. And so, so he sends him without all the men of Judah as he would hope. So it's probably in a few, only a few hundred men that go with Abishai. But notice who some of the men are. It says, he took Joab's men. Again, Joab's been left out of, of David's planning here. David is clearly forgetting Joab on purpose. So Joab's been, been shunned from leadership because of what he did when he killed Absalom, remember? David said, don't hurt my son, deal gently. Well, Joab kills him. And so David removes Joab from his position of leadership. And so Abishai and, and Joab's men, Joab among them, not leading them, but he's among them, as they're about six miles out from the city, up comes Amasa, right? Six miles too late. And as he approaches, here's Joab coming front and center again. And he comes out dressed as a soldier. Now remember, he, he, he's probably upset that he's been replaced by Amasa. He's probably, he can't believe that this, this inept general is now taking his place. Can't believe that Amasa is over the king's army. But also remember, Joab fought against Amasa's troops, and so he's just come out of the, a, a bloody battle against Amasa. And so he sees Amasa approaching. Yeah, he's replaced him, but he's also fought alongside him, and he probably killed a lot of Joab's men. And so Joab, when he sees Amasa approaching, he takes matters into his own hand. And so as he approaches, and, and this ought to have, have jogged your memory to, to a man named Ehud out of Judges, right? so you can write down that name and, do, and search him later. But Joab, as he's approaching, and as Amasa's approaching, Right, he accidentally drops his sword from its sheath. Right, so, so this is this isn't an this, this is an intentional accident, and so the sword falls to the ground as as him and Amasa are coming in. So he picks up the sword with his left hand, which would have been no threat. This wasn't the, the hand of fighting, and so he just picks it up. And so Amasa doesn't even notice it because it's not a big deal. If the sword's in the right hand, okay, then you beware. But he picks up with his left hand, and as he approaches, he takes his right hand. He's going to greet him with a kiss. He grabs his beard. You can see this illustrated on the front of your bulletin. But he grabs the beard. He, he asks him, is all well with you? Is it going well with you? And he grabs, grabs his, his beard, pulls him close, and shoves his sword in his stomach and kills him. Just like that one blow, it doesn't even, he doesn't even need a second blow. And so Joab takes action. Amasa has no clue about Joab's evil, evil attent, intent. He strikes Amasa and Amasa is dead. Just like that. So, so we see Joab's true colors coming out. But, but as, as, he's, as Amasa is dead in the middle of the highway, Joab and Abishai, they continue on after Sheba. Okay, so yeah, we took care of that. Now we've got, a, we've got a task. And so one of Joab's young men stands there beside Amasa's dead body. And notice what he says. So, he, so here's, here's, here's one of, who once was one of Absalom's men, but now is one of David's leaders who's laying dead in his blood in the middle of the highway. And so all these people that are passing are seeing it. It's like the, the traffic jam. Everybody's rubbernecking. Whoa, I wonder what happened there. And so there's a traffic jam, and, and, and they're not going after, after, a ma after Sheba. And so a young man stands in the road, and notice what he says. He says, if you favor Joab, and if you're for David, then follow Joab. In other words, this guy's dead. Amasa is dead, but Joab is now the general. So if you're for David, you better follow Joab. That's what he's saying. Do you know, that, that's a, he is usurping power. Joab is saying, I'm, I'm a self-appointed leader now. If David's not going to make me leader, I'm going I'm to make myself leader. This is a treasonous act by Joab and this young man. 
Job had been removed from his position of authority, but here, according to his own plan, he usurped the power that he once had and that he wanted back. And so as there's this traffic jam here, because everyone that would come by would slow down and look at the, the dead body of their former leader, this young man, seeing the distraction that Amasa's body was creating, he carries the body out of the highway, puts him in the field, and then covers him up. Thus, Amasa was eliminated. And just like that, the army, they, there's nothing, nothing to see here. They keep moving and marching on following Joab. Amasa's discarded, not to be mentioned again. So the scene shifts after that interaction in verse 14, and, and we're turned, our attention is turned to Sheba. So he's passing through all the tribes of Israel, and apparently he, he couldn't, or maybe just didn't have enough time, but, but he couldn't muster much support because only the Bircherites assembled and followed him. And so they go to the city named Abel, the city of Abel. And so with all the men, so, so they go to that city and they take refuge there. Maybe they're waiting for reinforcements. Regardless, they're there, and Joab and his men know that that's where they've gone, and they approach the city. And they began a siege of this entire city looking for Sheba. And as the siege began, they build this ramp up or this hill up against the city wall. They began battering the city wall, attempting to knock it down. So that they're going to they're gonna attack, they're going to go over the wall. They're going to just ransack the city because that's where Sheba is. And as the whole city waits in fear of the invading army, this unnamed woman, an unnamed wise woman, comes out and says, Wait a minute, stop! Let me talk to, let me talk to Joab. Let me have a word with him. And the woman, Joab, comes. She says, are you Joab? Yes, I am. Well, well, hear me. Hear me out. And he says, I'm listening. And so she reasons with Joab that this city has a reputation of wisdom. It's known for its wisdom. And I don't know why, Joab, you feel the need to destroy an entire city of Israelites, especially peaceful, faithful Israelites that we are. Why are you going to destroy the entire city for one man? He says, I'm not, no, no, far be it from me, right? We don't, we don't believe that. But he says, far be it from me, I'm only after a Sheba who's a rebel that has lifted his hand against King David. Solomon says, oh, you only want him and then you'll, take, you'll, you'll leave us alone? Okay, wait right there, the head's coming over shortly. And so she goes back and, and in her wisdom talks to the people, and that's exactly what happens. Solomon convinces the townspeople to kill Sheba and save themselves. Now, now we should note this unnamed wise woman is the one person who, in her wisdom, prevents further bloodshed. Right? She's the wise one. She, she's not using her, her, her muscle or her power. She, reason, she makes a good argument with Joab also. Why, we're a whole city. Why are you going to destroy a whole city? And so she convinces the people to give up Sheba. And just like that, an unnamed wise woman saves the kingdom. She ends Sheba's rebellion. It's over. And then the trumpet is blown and everyone goes home. And Joab goes back to King David. And we find out, it's interesting there, at those last few verses of chapter 20, that Joab remained in power. So David doesn't address this. He, he, Joab made it put himself back in power and he remained in power, it says there in 23, verse 23. And then we see a familiar name, a list of names of those in David's leadership. Well, as we transition to chapter 21, let me make one brief point of application because we're transitioning as we end chapter 20 and go to 21, we're, we're ending a section of 2 Samuel and we're entering the final section. And, and in this, so, so as, as chapter 20 ends, those verses 23, 24, 25, 26, that's just a list of, of generals, a list of names, and that closes out the section. And the same section began the similar way. 
earlier in 2 Samuel. And so now as we're transitioning to chapter 21, this final section, verse 20, or chapter 21, 22, 23, and 24, this is a, a final section of the book of 2 Samuel. And in this section, it's evident that these events are not necessarily a chronological continuation of what's happened thus far. Okay, so, so it's like, okay, this is the end of the chronological telling of the story of David, and then 21 through 24 is a, is, is a section that's almost added on intentionally, and it's part, it should be there, but it's there as kind of like a closing summary almost. And we're going to find events here in chapters 21 through 24. They're tied to Saul's activity of king as kind of like a summary. We're going to have war with the Philistines, which has been part, a summary of David's activity. We're going to hear David's song of deliverance. That's going to be next week. Chapter 22 is all about David's song of deliverance. And then we're going to see David avert the anger of the Lord against Israel one final time. And in this final section, it's almost as if it's looking back on David's rule and reign and saying, here's the highlights, here's a summary. And one Old Testament scholar says that this final section is a highly reflective theological interpretation of David's whole career adumbrating the messianic hope, which provides a clear hermeneutical guide for its use as sacred scripture. In other words, all of these events are grouped together in this final section in order to make one final point, a final point that leaves us at the end of 2 Samuel, a point which is simply David, although highly flawed, at the end of the day is still a type of the king of Israel who would come. And so this is a summary statement as kind of saying, here is the ideal king that we had in David. Yes, he's flawed, but here is the type that's a foreshadowing of the one king who's going to come. So David, it's going to say, is the one concerned, to do, concerned with doing the Lord's will. David's the one who suffers righteously under the hand of Saul. David's the one who waits patiently for the Lord. David, though not the Messiah, was the best picture of Israel, that Israel was going to get of an ideal king for God's people. And so it's like, here's your picture here it is. Here's your snapshot of the ideal king, which they would look at. And so you read the Psalms long after David's gone. They say, we want David. We want David. That he was the ideal picture, and he would be the picture that Israel would have until they got the one true ideal king. So he's the picture until Jesus comes as David's son. And so we see David as an image, as a type of the righteous ruling king. Well, so let's transition into chapter 21, and, and we see in the first 14 verses, I'm not going to read them, but if you follow along, I, you'll see what, what's taking place as I, as I explain. But as we transition to chapter 21, we, in verse 1, we learn that Israel is in the midst of a three-year famine. And so again, I don't think this is necessarily chronologically immediately after what happened when, when the, the, the rebellion of Sheba was put down. Maybe it is, but I don't think it's necessarily right after it. But then in the midst of this three-year famine, David sought the face of the Lord. That's, that's David's first impulse. We're, we're, in, we're under famine three years. Let, let's see if this is the Lord's doing. He seeks, seeks the face of the Lord, and the Lord tells David this famine is because of something Saul has done. Specifically, Saul had put the Gibeonites to death. And so when Saul was ruling, he had, he had killed this group of people, the Gibeonites. And by doing so, he had violated a centuries-old non-aggression treaty that had been established before the Lord between Israel and the Gibeonites. And so if you remember, it's not stated here in the text, but the treaty that Saul violated when Saul killed the Gibeonites, it took, all the, it took place all the way back in Joshua 9. You can, you can read Joshua 9 for the specifics, 
But, but in Joshua 9, the, the people, the Israelites, are invading the promised land, taking over the promised land, and they're wiping out the people. And the Gibeonites deceive Joshua, and they, they trick him into entering into this covenant with them. They won the pity of Joshua. That Remember, they tore their robes and acted like they came a long way off. And Joshua made a peace treaty with them. He made a covenant with them, and he let them live. live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So there's this covenant that's entered into between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. And so Saul, when he was ruling, he, he didn't care about that. He saw the threat of this Gibeonite people to the nation of Israel as a greater issue than, than violating the covenant that Israel had entered into them. So he says, okay, here's a threat. Let's wipe them out. Joshua must have forgotten them. They, they're a threat to us. Let's wipe them out. Instead of saying, wait a minute, uh, they tricked us, but we, we gave them our word and we, we made a covenant with them before the Lord that we would not wipe them out, that they would live. And so Saul violates that covenant. He had put the Gibeonites to death, and the drought that Israel was experiencing was because of the Lord's curse on the land. The Lord had cursed the land because of Saul's sin. And so David, after hearing from the Lord, decided to go to the Gibeonites, and he asked them, what, what can I do? What can we do for you? What can we give you to make things right? Is there a price that we could pay so that you might bless Israel? And after initially saying, no, you can't give us anything, after initially refusing to name a price, the Gibeonites eventually tell David, if you give us seven of Saul's sons, the man who sought to wipe us out, if you give us seven of his sons that we can put to death, then we'll be, that'll be enough. That'll be enough. And then at the end of verse 6, that's exactly what David does. Okay, that's what we'll do. Notice at the end of verse 6, Mephibosheth is, is safe because of David's covenant with Jonathan. So Mephibosheth continues to benefit from, the, the, from David's agreement with him, from his father's friendship with David. So Mephibosheth is safe, but, but David gives seven others of Saul's descendants to the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites put them to death. Put them all to death there on the mountain before the Lord. I'll say more about that in a minute. But these, these seven men are, are killed, put to death on the hill, on the mountain before the Lord. And after these seven men are killed, we're told about a mother, a mother whose two sons were among those seven that had been killed. Rizpah, the mother, goes out to the scene of the execution and, and she camps out day and night. And so they've already been exposed. They're already exposed to this shameful death, but it would be, it would be even worse, even more shameful if, if birds or beasts began to pick at these bodies. And so she says, that's not going to happen. I, I couldn't prevent them from being crucified, but I'm at least going to, to go protect them from the animals, from nature. And so she's mourning the loss and protecting her sons. Day and night she's camping out, protecting them or their corpses. And so David, upon hearing about this mother's action, he decides to honor them, not only these seven who are killed, but also he, he brings Saul's bones and Jonathan's bones Remember, they hadn't been buried in the promised land. They had been taken and buried somewhere else. And so David has all the bones of these men, these members of Saul's house, and the, the bones of, of Saul and David buried together in the land of Benjamin. It's like he brings all of the bones home and gives them a proper burial in the promised land. And in so doing, David is honoring the family of Israel's first dynasty, right? giving them an honorable burial. And notice in verse 14, God responded to the plea for the land. And so that, that, the, the drought was over. Payment had been made. Atonement 
had been accomplished. And so while, again, there are a lot of questions surrounding these events, a lot of questions I still have that, that I'm not sure the answer to, but, but one point of application that I simply would make in passing from this is the horror of atonement. This Saul had killed the Gibeonites in violation of a covenant. He had polluted the land with their blood. And he wasn't around to pay for his sin. But his sin, the, the shedding of blood for his sin, required blood to be shed. That's how it worked. And that, that's foreign to our Western minds, I understand, but that's how it worked. And because Saul wasn't there, his descendants were required to pay the price. This is why the members of his house stand in his place. They were substitutes, as it were. And it is gruesome and horrible. It is messy and ugly. And I just, want, I just want to let that set there. It is an ugly thing for the sin, for the blood to be shed as payment for the sin. It's always the case when sin is paid for. When God's wrath and God's anger is satisfied, it is not clean and it not, should not be easy to pass over. And that's simply what I want to say here. Atonement is being made here and it is a messy ordeal. Well, the chapter 21 ends... As we come to verses 15 through 22, we see Israel at war. Israel at war. We see the, the team of Israel versus the giants. Right? This is just a recollection of all the, the battles between Israel and the giants. And we see what seems like a version of, uh, this is like a, a, a film, a highlight film of Israel's greatest plays or greatest victories. And so in verses 15 through 22, there's recounted four separate occasions where an Israelite soldier defeats one of the Philistine giants one of the people that Goliath was of. And so first, and in most detail, during the war between the Philistines and the Israelites, again, I don't think this is necessarily after what we've just read at the end of chapter 20. I think this could have happened earlier during David's reign. It may have been after, I, I don't know. But this first occasion, David goes out with his troops. He gets tired, and he apparently couldn't retreat or defend himself. He's, he's out, maybe he's older. And he, he can't defend himself. And one of the Philistine giants named Ishbi Binab saw the king. Wait a minute, that's King David on the battlefield, and he looks tired. So he sets out for the king and probably would have killed David there if it weren't for Abishai. And so we're told that Abishai came to David's aid and attacked and killed the giant. We're also told after that instance, David was prohibited from going out with his troops on the battlefield. He couldn't go out with them. He had to lead from from far away from now on, because he was much more valuable than any of the troops. And every time he was on the field, he would be the target of the enemy. Well, the next three episodes are mentioned more briefly. Sebekai, the Hushethite, struck down Saf, the second account. Third, Elhanan, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath. Jonathan, son of Shimei, who also happened to be David's nephew, struck down the nameless, six-fingered, six-toed giant, the 24-digit giant. And in verse 22, in the conclusion, all four of these Philistines were descended from the giants in Gath. And all four, we ought to note, were felled by the hand of David and his servants. Now, I want to say one thing, because there, in the verses about Elhanan the Bethlehemite, there, this, this verse has created all kinds of discussion so there it's verse 19, and it says that Elhanan struck down Goliath the Gittite. Now, obviously, this creates somewhat of a dilemma because David is the one recorded as killing Goliath. 
And so all kinds of ways have been, have been argued to deal with this. Some will say, yep, David didn't kill him. He was just made, he was written in in, in 1 Samuel 17 because he should have been the hero. I, I, think that's, I, think that's, I don't think that's right because that's doubting what 1 Samuel 17 says. It's clear, David killed him. So I think David killed him. Okay, that's clear. How, how do we reconcile this? You know, some people say, well, Goliath, there might have been more than one Goliath. So there's not a problem. David killed one and Elhanan killed another. Some will say... Elhanan is just another name for David. Okay, I don't think any of these are very likely, but, but they make sense. But I think the most convincing explanation is that in, in, in a copying of the original, and as this is passed down and copied, I, I think that in 2 Samuel it's possible, even likely, that a clarification was left out. I think it should probably say that Elhanan killed Goliath's brother. And I'm not saying that because, oh, let's pull that out of there. But if you write down 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5, which again, so 1 and 2 Samuel is paralleled by 1 Chronicles. And 1 Chronicles, in this description of all these, these battles, it reads exactly this, that Elhanan killed Goliath's brother. So I think that's, that's probably the most likely explanation. Again, I, I think that's likely. No explanation is foolproof, I'll say, but, but I don't think we should be troubled by this, because at the end of the day, David killed Goliath, and Elhanan killed Goliath, or someone else who was a descendant of Goliath. And I think the point here is that David and Israel defeated the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines throughout the history of Israel were their greatest enemy, and uh, under David's leadership, all of their best were defeated and cut down by David and his servants. And so David is this ideal king. And with that, we come to the end of chapter 21. And so next week, Lord, we'll look at David's song of deliverance in chapter 22. But, but here's the final application, and, and we're, we'll close here. And it comes from this last, this last section from these four giants falling at the hands of David. And here's the application. God brings his promises to pass. Now, where, where do I get that? Well, all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 3, you can write down 2 Samuel 3, 18, but all the way back then, Abner joins David's side. So Abner, he's, he's gone now, right? But all the way back then, he was on the, the opponent's side and he joins David's side. But, but in, as he joins their side in battle, Abner tells the men of Israel, make David your king. You need to do this. And here's the reason that Abner gives all the way back in 2 Samuel 3, he says, Because the Lord has promised to David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And so God had promised David that he would save Israel from the Philistines by the hand of David. And that's all the way back when David was still patiently waiting. To, he wasn't even king yet. And that's the promise. David's going to deliver my people from the Philistines. And all the way here at the end of 2 Samuel, in the closing sections, we're not to miss the point that has been made throughout the book, which is simply that God brought this promise to pass. Point in case, Philistine 1, 2, 3, and 4, that were all felled by David and his men. The point is simply God promised something and he brought it to pass, which tells us God's word is sure. God's word is true. God will accomplish what he says. 
And we see that he's done it through David, through his anointed one. What Saul's regime did not do, David, by God's power, did. And so this brief report of the four Israelite heroes who slay the giants from Gath, it testifies that what God promised at first, he brings about at last. The Lord has been with David to accomplish what the Lord promised through David. Do you see? His promise is true. It will come to pass. And here's where I want to encourage us. Think, think about how long ago David was in the valley with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. There in that valley, all the way back in 1 Samuel 17, the Lord was with David and gave David victory over Goliath, and the Philistines fled. Fast forward now here, all the way at the end of 2 Samuel, in verse 22 of chapter 21, we still have four giants from Gath falling by the hands of David and his servants. And in both cases, the reason of the outcome is the same. In both cases, the word of the Lord, the promise of God is the driving force. From beginning to end, the word of the Lord proves true. And here's where I want to encourage us this morning. The Lord's early promises prove firm even to the end. And some of us need that assurance as we knowingly approach that end. And so I just want to encourage you, dear saints, the promises that you believed when you were younger, when you first became a Christian, right? as you near the end of your life, you're probably tempted to say, is it all really worth it? They are just as true now as they were then. The hope of resurrection is just as sure now as it was then. The promise of forgiveness of sins is just as sure now as it was then. So let me encourage you, dear saints who've been walking this road far longer than me, those who've been trusting the Lord from the beginning, hear me when I say the promises that have brought you this far will not fail you now. They won't. Take heart Christian. His promises will not fail you now or ever. His word is still true and his hand is still strong. So be encouraged, dear saint. Let's pray as we close.